she's always been the type of person that just says things and she just speaks her mind. I guess that has a little bit to do with not having a formal education. Welcome to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. And we are coming to you after the completion of the 2016 US Open. We are. It's finally over. The Grand Slam season is done. Are you relieved? I'm a little bit relieved. Um, yeah, I am actually. I'm a little, well, disappointed, obviously, in the final slam. I was really looking forward to it. And it just really, like, wasn't that exciting for me, to be totally honest. Which is partly why we didn't do a mid-tournament episode. Mm. Partly because we, if we had recorded then, it would have been right after some really depressing losses for us. Right. Being Venus and Rafa. And we just weren't in the right headspace. And we were pretty damn busy, too. We've been going at a, a breakneck speed with work and life and your internship and everything. Yeah. And my birthday, by the way. Right. Happy birthday to me. <laughs> uh, on the 7th of September. You turned 42. Yeah, mm -hmm. I turned 42. <laughs> I'm happy your birthday comes because it's for three weeks every year, I'm a full two years older than you. Mm. And so when you finally catch up to one year behind, I'm I'm happy. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Mm -hmm. You know, like, that's not how math works, though. Well, there, I always get caught off guard. <laughs> Somehow, somebody always asks us how old we are, and I say it wrongly, because mm. I just assume it's one year, and we're like, damn, I'm two years older than you right now, and I feel really old and mm. depressed about life, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I should say, like, the highlight of the tournament for me was Novak not winning. Wow, you're just coming right yeah. out and laying it all on the table. What was the highlight for you? The highlight? I don't have one. You don't have one? <laughs> no, I have many lowlights. Yeah. I have the heartbreak of Venus losing match point to Pliskova in the fourth round. And Pliskova eventually mm. going on to beat Serena and make the final. I mean, the, the, the story of Venus in her latter career is one of incredible inspiration, but also incredible heartbreak for mm -hmm. her fans. Because it's like the story of losing to the eventual champ or the eventual finalist. Right. Am I supposed to take solace in Venus playing one of the matches of the year again, mm. like she did against Kvitova at the 2014 Wimbledon, only to have Kvitova go on to win that tournament as well? Right. She was so close and played such good tennis for large portions of that tournament. And here we are again. Mm. But at the same time, you let that disappointment subside and then you're left with feeling inspired all over again. It's a, it's bittersweet. It's the definition of bittersweet. Venus Williams in her, in her older years. Right. And you really felt like, well, I mean, she was very, very close to winning that match. Obviously, she had a match point, but I really thought she was going to pull it out. And it would be silly for us to sit here and wonder when you know the big R is coming because why? Why would you right? retire at this point? She'll be number seven down one spot mm. next week. But still top ten, still giving these youngins 
just a run for their money. Mm -hmm. Caroline Wozniacki tweeted during the tournament after or before that match saying, wow, I was seven years old when Venus first played the US Open. And now Mm -hmm. we think of Caroline as somewhat washed up. Venus is still outplaying Caroline. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is um, a little rude, reminding Venus of her age. Because, you know, (laughs) Venus read that and was like, who's that again? (laughs) I feel like that's one of Serena's little friends. I feel like that's a girl that I have a really good record against. (laughs) But we're starting off with the winners. And so your 2016 champions are Angelique Kerber and Stan Wawrinka, Mm -hmm. which both represent massive storylines in tennis. Well, just huge. Where to start? It's enormous. Set aside Serena not winning, which is a huge disappointment for you. Mm -hmm. Let's put into context what Angelique Kerber has done. She is your WTA number one. Okay. So both you and I predicted last year that Kerber had the potential to win a major. Maybe it wouldn't happen this year, but we wouldn't have been surprised if, if it did. And I also predicted that Pliskova could break out as mm-hmm. well. So. Right. But that said, I certainly did not foresee a year like this for Angelique Kerber or for anyone except for Serena. Australian Open title. Wimbledon final, which Austral- was a surprise to me. Australian Open third set and title. Right. Against Serena. Right. She had a bit of a dip for a couple months, came back one Stuttgart. Didn't fare too well at the French Open, as you said, made the final of Wimbledon. Silver medal at the Olympics. Came back, flew halfway across the world. Maybe not quite halfway across the world, but a lot of jet lag. Made the final in Cincinnati, lost to Pliskova. Mm -hmm. Then comes back and wins the US Open. This is, I mean, in the past nine months, she's made herself a Hall of Famer. Just like that. She would. She has two slams now. She just needs to win a few more titles, and it's it's a pretty much a lock. Yeah, I mean that's the precedent for the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Not you know, that the Hall of Fame. There is are this, some single slammers in there. Yeah, you know, not that there's this massive prestige attached to the Hall of Fame the way there is in say baseball mm-hmm. or other sports. Tennis is a very individual sport, and so she'll probably take much more self-satisfaction from winning those titles than eventually making the the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. But still, to think of where she is now and the prospect for that happening for her as opposed to where she was two years ago. Because it's not just this year. She won four titles last year. Yes. Which is why we pegged her as somebody to look out for this year. On three different surfaces. Yeah. And she competed yesterday like the world number one mm-hmm. you know there's there's really no question who has had the best year who's the player of the year on the wta tour like it's obvious that it's her people are saying well serena only played like four tournaments and she still you know is number two and right but that's the point point. and kerber she... is playing every tournament you know so obviously like, okay. no serena played eight tournaments this year she won wimbledon Made the final of Australia, made the final of the French Open, has made deep runs at pretty much every Mm. tournament she's played. She's been hindered by injury, by whatever. (laughs) Right. Right? Many different things you could point to. But the fact that she doesn't play as much as Kerber does shouldn't negate. It's not like Safina or, 
Yankovic or Wozniacki. No, this it, is not what this is. It's not like Wozniacki playing 22 tournaments in a year and winning New Haven, mm-hmm. you know, and, and keeping number one. It's just not the same thing. Because in a lot of those tournaments that Kerber did play, she didn't do too well. Right. <laughs> she lost early a lot, but she also bossed her way to a lot of big titles, mm-hmm. beating some big players. And the problem that I feel a lot of people have with Kerber is that her game doesn't pass the eye test of being a world number one. There's nothing super flashy about it. She doesn't have the big serve like Serena. She doesn't blow opponents off the court. And so some people, and myself included for a while, struggled to find the greatness in Kerber's game. Mm. And at this point, we have to see that the sum of the parts of Kerber's game add up to something really special. Absolutely. To me, the shot that shows that she's a number one player is that down the line forehand yesterday to get back on serve in the third (laughs) set of the final. Come on. Where, I mean, really, with Pliskova's serve, she really could have run out that third set and won the title. But, you know, maybe the break was a little bit too early in the set. Which you pointed out to me as it was happening Mm -hmm. that Courtney Nguyen had tweeted that. Yeah. And she was prophetic because it, it was. You know, she couldn't hold on to that lead. But Kerber played with such composure again. You know, I never expected her to play that well in Australia and in the le- final against Serena. And let's not overlook the stamina of this woman. Right. To play, you'd say, well, she plays so much, that's why she's number one. But she plays so much and plays so well consistently. Mm-hmm. This has been a summer from hell for a lot of these tennis players. Yeah. And she's gone through it and come out at the top consistently. And for the people who are really salty about Serena no longer being number one, revel in those 186 weeks. It's a phenomenal achievement. She tied Steffi Graf. It's not like she didn't get the record. She has the record. She just doesn't have it by herself. But let's not shit on Angelique Kerber (laughs) because of that. And what I said to you the other day, if Serena now wants that number one ranking again, she needs to go get it. Yeah, Play those true. tournaments. If you're healthy, fine. Maybe you're not able to play as much physically as you did in the past. But it's there for the taking. Mm-hmm. And if she wants it, she can go get it. Now, Karolina Pliskova. How? These last two tournaments, Cincinnati and the U.S. Open. Come on. The game is there. She has a huge serve. Mm -hmm. We know that. She has the most aces on tour. She has very, very flat ground strokes, which, as you know, can go really bad sometimes. But she's been zoning for the past 10 matches she's played. She's improved her footwork, her movement a little bit, but it's still pretty bad. Yeah, Wouldn't you say? it's still not really existent. And so you think if she's able to really improve that aspect of her game, she could be a serious world beater. Mm. Okay, here's the thing. Muguruza, Pliskova, these two, if they're playing well, and they're remembering to move their feet, they can beat anyone. Okay. I still but, think Muguruza is still a, a, a step ahead. I agree. At her best. I agree. But where is she? She's had a so-so year. Muguruza? Yeah. This was, you know, the French Open was her coming out party. But where was she for the rest of the year? Well, it's not that great. We've speculated that Samsung is running her into the ground. 
Like that's something that was speculated a lot about when we were in Cincinnati. Mm. Like and other it, people or just other us? people as well. Oh, okay. Which then, you know, led us to talk about it as well. But, you know, she's been inconsistent before. I don't know if yeah. this is going to be something that carries through her career. Because at the moment, maybe she's just young, but at the moment you can't see her dominating. Plishkova is also just 24. These women are young. Yeah. That's also the story of Angelique Kerber. She's doing this at the tail end of what we would expect mm-hmm. someone's career to be. Well, similar to Stan Wawrinka. Yeah, it's the new prime of a tennis player's career. You get to the back end of your 20s, and all that promise and struggles of your early 20s, You something clicks and you mm-hmm. find something new in your game to then take yourself to the next level. And how many years was she, you know, just a counterpuncher? You know, uh-huh. she was kind of written off as someone who plays great defense, doesn't hit many errors, but there wasn't like a spark. There wasn't something truly exciting about her. And now there is. Which you could then say, well, if Muguruza is this young and Pliskova is 24 and they've had this success this early, that you could really make the case for something really great for them Mm -hmm. in the not-so-distant future, given where Kerberos come from. And Pliskova really played very well in the final. She did not back down. They delivered us a pretty impressive U.S. Open final. You know, I remember watching those Serena Azarenka finals, which were so high quality and absolute classics. And here's another one. I don't want to say oh you know we're finally getting a women's grand slam final that's exciting because that's not true because there are plenty of them especially in the past you know four or five years there have been many Mm -hmm. and this was another one even when somebody like shavashiva shows up in a final unexpectedly at last year's french open she delivers a really standout performance right against serena Mm -hmm. the men's winner stan warenko like he did against novak at the french open last year lost the first set and won the next three. This is <laughs> this is crazy what he's doing. This is 11 finals won in a row. He's won all three of his Grand Slam finals. Against Rafa, fine. At that Australian Open, you want to put some kind of asterisk if you if you're want to. Mm-hmm. As okay. a Rafa fan, have that moment. But there's no denying what he did at the French Open and there's no denying what he did tonight. He's a bona fide star player. He's a big match player is what he yeah. is. And he won all three of his slam finals against number one players. And he lately he has Novak's number in Grand Slams. I saw a lot of people predicting that Stan would win this tournament before the tournament started. And I honestly thought it was a rubbish prediction. I thought there's no yeah. way. this. We were so blinded. By this being Novak Mari 72.0. It just seemed like that was going to happen. Mari had just won the Olympics, made the final in Cincinnati, lost there. Fine, as did Kerber. But it seemed like with the the uncertainty surrounding Novak, that this was going to be Mari's tournament. And here comes Stan to Mm -hmm. save match points against Dan Evans in the third round. Beat Del Potro beat Nishikori, and then Djokovic in the final. That was one hell of a tournament. Yeah, and because we looked at his draw in the beginning of the tournament, and it was such a shambles. Didn't we say that if anybody were cursing the tennis draws right now, yeah, it would be Stan Wawrinka? And this goes to show you 
And maybe players shouldn't even look at their draws. Mm-hmm. You know? Take a note from Serena. <laughs> right? Because he had Del Potro in there. There was Ferrer. There was... Uh... Curios was in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. Curios. And that's a whole other drama that we'll talk about in a uh-huh. little while. But it was a, just a really bad, bad draw for a top four seed. And he just came through. Played a lot of tennis these past two weeks. A lot of time on court. And he stayed the course. He seems to be someone who, okay, he beat Del Potro, paid him back for Wimbledon. He seems like, I know he gets up for big matches, but he's also kind of a spoiler. You know, it seems like he likes to kind of shit on people's hopes and dreams, especially (laughs) Novak Djokovic's. (laughs) Is that not right, though? Apparently at this point, let's be real, Novak had no business winning this tournament. No. Given his injury concerns... Given his lack of match play, given the lack of time on court because of the retirements and the withdrawals. Mm -hmm. Now, I was starting to get upset because, to me, I go back in time to the Federer of yore, and I can remember players going up against him and acting defeated before the match even started. Sort of rolling over, because this is the great Roger Federer, and literally this is what was happening in this tournament. Because of injuries or whatever, people are like, well, I guess we'll just we'll just give the title to Novak. You no, know, it's like, more than that. Like these players were actually injured. Yeah. It was a lot of good fortune on his part. But oh, before I found out that Songo was injured, I'm sitting there watching the match, which I was very, very excited for, mm-hmm. in which I thought Songa had the real potential to pull that match out. Because you've been carrying this torch yes. for years now. But I was sitting there thinking, wow, I guess Songa really doesn't want to win. But then, you know, I find out that he's injured. It was extremely disappointing. Lots of drama in this match. Novak with the bloody toe, unable to win like Kurt Schilling did with his bloody sock. (laughs) That's the comparison that's made in the North American sporting lure. Well, yeah, but pitchers just have to stand there. No, it was a they don't have to run. No, but it was... This is... (laughs) You're showing a a severe lack of understanding of baseball Mm. right now. Well, I understand what pitchers do. Okay. But they're not like running around a concrete court. You need your ankle that you push off of to pitch. Why? What was was wrong with his foot? Why was it bleeding? He had a bloody, bloody ankle. I don't know what was wrong with it. Anyway. He had a long-standing injury and he, he pushed through it. I truly could not keep track of Novak's injuries during this tournament. Because there was the wrist, and then there was a shoulder problem, Mm -hmm. and then there seemed to be a leg-slash-possibly-cramping issue in this final, and then he took a medical timeout for the toe, which was bleeding, and apparently Marion Vida said that he's going to have to have the nail removed, which is truly horrifying. Mm -hmm. The blood don't lie. It's not for those Novak truthers out there. However, it's not that Novak on a changeover went and like ripped his nail off or, you know, cut his nail so that he could have this excuse. That's not what happened. However, someone like Novak doesn't get the benefit of the doubt because he doesn't deserve it. Why? Because going all the way back to that Wimbledon match with Gael Monfils. Sorry, which, bird flu. Which I'm sure. Does this predate bird this flu? predates bird flu. I'm okay. sure that Monfils was quietly paying him back for that 
Oh my god. Really embarrassing display. We'll get to that match. I mean, Novak is not the same player that he was then. He doesn't engage in as many tricks, because that was really dirty way back when. But this was most certainly gamesmanship in this match. The commentators weren't afraid to call it that. Well, the issue is that the toe didn't start bleeding or hurting him immediately after he finished serving Mm. to hold for 1-3 in that fourth set. And then he decides to take the medical timeout, which within the rules of tennis, he was allowed to take it. Mm -hmm. Because, well, the issue was that it wasn't on a changeover and it was before Stan would serve. Yeah. So instead of taking the timeout before he was to serve, he took it after he finished serving and before Wawrinka was trying to hold his own serve. Mm -hmm. And And that's where the gamesmanship or allegations of come into play. But Stan was upset, obviously. Stan was upset when Rafa took an injury timeout in the Australian Open final, and I was very angry with him. You know, because Stan can be like a dick. He really can be. <laughs> Which of these men yeah. don't have that pedigree? <laughs> but when I'm watching someone face Novak in a final, I want to be able to root for that person and, <laughs> and feel good about it. You are shameless. <laughs> so Novak sort of reaches over and apologizes to Stan while they're at their chairs and was like, sorry, I, you know, I couldn't even stand. But he was able to just hold serve. I get, But I guess he couldn't stand. This is um, something that you will speculate one way or the other about. Mm. You clearly have your opinion. This is clearly going to line up along the fandoms. But I did see there were some Novak fans on my timeline who are very reasonable people who were criticizing... These these people exist? They are, they do. Oh. And they were criticizing their Lord Novak for that time out. So, that's all I'm going to say. Are you sending them a Christmas card this year? <laughs> <laughs> now I might. No, because, to be fair, I have read Rafa, I have read Serena, when they've done things that I found mm-hmm. to be wrong or offensive, you know. See, this is the thing. I've... Now that I've been to Cincinnati as press, I have a, a more self-critical analysis of what it's like to be the desired, quote-unquote, objective mm. person analyzing tennis, right? Okay. I, I found myself thinking a lot about things I've said in the past. Like, when I walked out of that press center and I came eye-to-eye, face-to-face with Justin Gimmelstab, mm. I was like, damn, girl, if he only <laughs> knew... All the shit I've talked about him on this podcast, but yet he's nodding and smiling at me right now. Mm-hmm. You know, there we we I take for granted the stuff that I say on this podcast. But at the end of the day, to be cliche, we've always been very upfront about our biases. And Serena, Rafa, Venus, right. those are the main biases. But we've always maintained that you know you can still present reasoned arguments and analysis about tennis and and things in general if you claim those biases Mm -hmm. so we don't put ourselves or lump ourselves into that that grouping of blind fanatics right well i don't at least i can't speak for you maybe other people put us in those groups (laughs) (laughs) i've always been in my life just a little bit too contrary to like line up completely with one one of these ideology yeah. yeah yeah Like, you don't want to be enjoying the Kool-Aid that much. Yeah. Yeah. You have to take your Kool-Aid with a grain of salt, so to speak. (laughs) When you find yourself enjoying the Kool-Aid too much, then you have to take a step back. Mm -hmm. 
life lessons from the co-hosts of the body serve (laughs) which that is like the most cynical thing i've ever heard it's like if you're enjoying yourself too much something must be wrong about it or something feel shame something must be wrong with you like you're living life the wrong way remember to feel guilt and shame this is part of being aware in this world you know oh i thought you were gonna say this is like part of growing up catholic (laughs) on my part at least i remember being an undergrad and going through all these philosophy courses and sports sociology and and all these classes that looked at sport from a, a sociological perspective and my advisor at the time kept hammering home about how the more he got older the more he was unable to enjoy damn near anything in life mm-hmm. because your critical mind's eye is just always at play he said he hadn't even enjoyed a film in like 20 years fully you know to be able to oh. fully give yourself over to the enjoyment of something oh see i'm not like that at all though you know i can watch the same movie 20 times and love it every time mm-hmm. and feel joy yeah but when the problematic things pop up you're gonna notice them and like mm. Mm. i mean you did suspend all of that when you're watching finding prince charming last night oh my god <laughs> no i did not suspend it that show is messy as fuck though <laughs> um maybe we're gonna have to do like a wrap-up of finding prince charming after we watch the whole season yeah the tv episode is coming so maybe that will dovetail well with finally getting us to do it. it's certainly not going in the best of category (laughs) well it's only been one episode who knows this is true i mean straight people y'all have been humiliating yourselves for so long on reality tv dating shows it's our turn Why do you, only you, get to make yourselves look like fools? You know, gay people can be vapid too. They, <laughs> and case in point, Finding Prince Charming. Right. Back to the issue at hand, tennis here. So this final, Stan Wawrinka, A-plus amazing this tournament. Kudos to you. Djokovic, will and come again. Your time will come again. Invariably so, right? Like The thing about... Djokovic watching him this tournament he's so far below his best Mm -hmm. and still able to beat damn near anybody right if he had gone against someone else in that final he really could have won probably would have beat Murray again and just really not playing that great yeah Stan is his bugaboo we know this Mm -hmm. now Stan's inside his head Stan is able to beat him blow for blow on the tennis court outside of the mental issues Mm -hmm. and challenges that he presents Novak he's just a bad matchup for him right now yeah and I don't I think he needs a different perspective about how to play Stan because obviously it's not working I mean for most of the time it is working because their head-to-head is very very lopsided but in these big matches his game plan just isn't working well maybe this is the genius of Stan Orenka you shit the bed year-round in Masters 1000s mm. and smaller tournaments. And you give these top players a false sense of security when it comes to these really big matches. <laughs> and so you just whop them once a year. For... So would you call it Monfizian? <laughs> Monfizesque? Oh my god. Let's let's move on and get into that. Uh, yeah. Okay. So in the men's semifinals, Novak and Monfiz played this bizarre, truly, I've heard it called an anti-epic of a match. One of the few matches we were both able to watch at Mm -hmm. the same time, in the middle of the afternoon before we went to work, 
and we got far more tennis than we expected because those two first sets were over in a flash. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, blink and you miss it, it's five love, Novak. And I'm thinking, wow, I guess Monfils just doesn't really feel like winning this match because his timing was off, His it was so bad, his serve was off, his forehand was flying out of the court. I'm like, what the hell is going on? This after Monfils had had such a great year. Mm-hmm making so many quarterfinals, winning DC, two other finals, I think something like nine quarters overall. He had made the semis in Toronto, lost to Jovac, Jovac, Jovac Nokovic. Yes. <laughs> See, don't blame the ESPN commentators too badly. It, it's, it can happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the point is, we'd gotten to this, this matchup thinking, I did at least, that Mofis had a decent shot at winning the match. And what became very clear right off the bat is that Mofis didn't share that same opinion. (laughs) And he said as much in his post-match press conference. Mm. He feels that Novak is just that good and too good for him that he had to go to his plan B very early in that match after he fell Mm -hmm. down 5-love. And in, in truth, what had happened was Mofis was nervous he wasn't playing that well he could have stayed the course of trying to play his game Mm -hmm. his game that he's become much better at this past year but his lack of belief in himself against novak took him in another direction right now i as you know he was heavily criticized slammed by the commentary team of John McEnroe, Brad Gilbert, and Chris Fowler. Mm -hmm. And so especially, obviously, John McEnroe has been in a mood this entire tournament and just really dug in on Malfi's, calling him unprofessional. At one point, he used the word imposter as if he hadn't earned his spot. He won more matches than Novak did, may I remind you. He's won more matches than most people all year. Right. But he earned his spot in the semifinals, he tried, I mean, admittedly, if it was a tactic, it looked very strange. Mm-hmm. You know, he started, it didn't even look like he was attempting to return serve. He was just chipping in serves, not really moving around the court. And it totally threw Novak off. And he went from 5-love to, I think, 5-3, right? Yeah. So he lost these games. He was and confused. He points for 5 He was pissed off. Mm-hmm. Novak was really bothered by it. But... John McEnroe is sitting there at first saying, you know, I would call this very unprofessional if it weren't working. And like, first of all, what the fuck does that mean? It either is unprofessional or not. But the fact that it was working against Novak actually makes it a strategy. Right? Nobody, well, nobody in our household. I never thought he was tanking. People were telling, oh, he's tank. He's not tanking. He's clearly doing no. something different. You can't get to celebrate Monfils and his eccentricities in one breath when it's working and then shit on him in the next when it's not. Right. It's like, this is who he is. Yeah, he's going to try different things. And if you wanted to read one thing from these past two weeks, find a copy of Monfils' press transcript after that match because it's fascinating reading. Mm. He even drops the F-bomb. He was none too pleased. (laughs) Well, he basically said... What's good, Miley? I heard what you were talking... (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I heard what you were saying about me on TV. No, he was he was asked about McEnroe specifically mm-hmm. in that press conference, which was so unusual for people to be calling McEnroe out and being so direct with mm-hmm. another player about mm-hmm. some shit he was saying. And Mofis, to his credit, told the line saying, "You know, I'm disappointed if he feels that way because I have a lot of respect for him." Blah 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 blah. But this is what I was trying to do. But if I'm ESPN, if I'm getting my employee's name called up in press conferences for mm-hmm. some bullshit, mm-hmm. like that's a problem. It is, because journalists are also usually resistant to doing that sort of thing because, you know, it's kind of like a tribe. They're, I mean, commentators are not necessarily journalists, but these press people exist in kind of mm-hmm. the same world, right? His name was called in that press conference, and Mofis had to deal with it. And so that issue is out there. It's not just people typing away on Twitter, lamenting the general fuckery of John McEnroe. Mm, And so we had Chris Fowler come to his defense on Twitter. Very extensively. Right? It's like he's got a lot of time on his hands. (laughs) He's talking to everybody. Uh Uh-huh. And... You know, he's not getting rude or anything, but he is defending, you know, his commentary team, his bros, Mm. pretty thoroughly. And he's saying, well, this is what John's there for. He's there to Mm -hmm. give his perspective as a former player. Same with Brad. And Chris saying, you know, I'm not a former player, but like, this is what we rely on them to do. Well, John's perspective as a former player is stale as fuck. And offensive. And he's also a player who was not well-liked and carried on, other players and carried on his with his career. own shenanigans during his, mm. his career. So this is very much a case of the pot meeting the kettle and mm. realizing they're both black. <laughs> like the obliviousness would be shocking if it weren't so expected. And this and, came after he had carried on on a similar rampage against Kyrgios mm-hmm. early in the tournament. It's so, so misplaced. First of all, we know that John McEnroe does not watch tennis. Mm-hmm. He knows nothing. First of all, when he commentates a women's match, he knows nothing about the players involved, unless it's Serena. He does not prepare for men's matches either, but as a former male player, he feels like he has a lot to contribute. You know, regardless of what he knows about the players. He has the gravitas of a name and being well-known, but outside of that, Where do we get to hold him accountable for the rubbish that Mm. he says? Who is doing that? Not ESPN. And so during the Kyrgios match, he took this opportunity to tear apart Nick Kyrgios, who was very obviously injured. And so... Everybody knows Nick's been carrying this hip injury mm -hmm. for a while. It's not even just this year. It's something that's been recurring over his young career. He's also crying on one of the changeovers while he's getting attention. This is not Mm. somebody who doesn't care, which is the implication of what John's saying. And so he was suggesting that, you know, Nick's training is lax and his fitness is not there because he's lazy, which fine. I don't see the behind the scenes, but to carry on like this and to hit this kid when he's down, then he clearly cares mm. very much. He wants to be here. He's devastated sitting on the sidelines. There's definite truth to his lack of preparedness. Mm. Like we, I, we've seen that, right? But to say I've given up on Nick Kyrgios, mm. who cares if John McEnroe has given up on Nick Kyrgios? Would you ever want John McEnroe as your coach? I to- can you imagine? I totally agree with you. I'm just mm. saying that there's a conflation between facts and observations that are true, mm. 
and melding them with his own blusterous opinions. Like, I see through that bullshit. Right. It's this business of pontificating and moralizing. It's the moralizing that really grinds my gears. Oh, yeah. And That's you, what it is. You get this with a lot of the former players who work for ESPN. First of all, we've had a lot of the same team for a good 15 years now. Mary Jo Fernandez, Pam Schreiber, John McEnroe, Patrick McEnroe. Brad Gilbert. You know, the same names. They're complacent at their jobs. They're saying the same things over and over. And, I mean, this is a different era of tennis. First of all, Serena and Venus have lived through three distinct eras. They've played through three very different eras in women's tennis. But these commentators are bringing, you know, their own experiences and, like, that's it. Can they be three distinct eras if they're all Serena eras? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I mean is that she played through the... No, I got you. Yes, I'm okay. just being facetious. Now, here's the thing, as I see it. Fans, especially this tournament, expressed a lot of displeasure at John McEnroe and Patrick McEnroe. We had a poll. I had a poll that got right. over 230 votes. If you could kick one ESPN commentator off the tennis island or off commentary or whatever, mm. who would it be? And the four, because Twitter only gives you four options. It could have been, I had to leave off Gilbert, I had to leave off Fowler, like all these mm. people that didn't make the list. But the four between John McEnroe, Everett, Patrick McEnroe, and Pam Shriver, McEnroe won running away, 56%, right. Everett 16%, McEnroe 15 and Shriver 13 Yeah, so... The thing is, though, fans are disgusted. People on Twitter are complaining. I have went through my timeline, my own tweets, and realized, wow, I bitched a lot about the commentary during this tournament. Mm -hmm. And even I got tired of complaining, you know, and I'm reading through my tweets. I'm like, oh, God, just shut up to myself. <laughs> but why, why would ESPN have any impetus to take action? They don't. They don't care, obviously. They do invest a lot in tennis. So I, you can't really say that ESPN doesn't care about tennis because they take up a lot of airtime for two weeks every mm -hmm. August, September. And I mean, through the other majors as well. Uh, but they believe that people are watching tennis for John McEnroe, apparently, that he's bringing eyeballs to tennis. No, I don't know if it's necessarily bringing eyeballs, but tennis is a very niche sport. Mm. And so if you have these very recognizable names like McEnroe and Everett, mm. It's something familiar for people tuning into tennis when you're doing those in-studio sessions. Like, oh, I know that person. It's something to keep the eyeballs on the television. I get mm. that. How many people are actually outside of tennis Twitter and people who follow? Who? How many people outside of us are there who follow tennis on a week-to-week -week basis? Mm. I, I'm assuming that the more casual fans aren't as bothered by this as we are. No. And that's part of the problem. And a lot of fans like big time fans will just mute the TV. Mm -hmm. So they're not actually going to turn off the broadcast. They're just going to mute it. Or find another stream. A lot of people like listening to, like watching tennis matches with Spanish commentators. Right. Because it sounds better and they don't know what they're talking about. Mm. Uh, there, There's ways around it. So I, I, I don't know. I, I don't see any end in sight because for the problem to be fixed, it'd have to be identified as a problem in the first place. Also, for it to be fixed, ESPN would have to be committed to quality programming, which they're not in other sports either, so... Yeah. There you have it. Alright, so what's next? 
quickly just some other players on both sides of the draw and notable stuff that happened with them. Mm-hmm. Andy Murray had the best summer of anyone and then lost to Kane Ishikori in the quarterfinals. We went from talking about Murray as entering the best phase of his career. Mm. Finally being back at that place where he was before he had those big time injuries after winning the two slams and the Olympics, the first go around, right? Mm -hmm. Being back at that place, winning Wimbledon, winning the Olympics. And possibly being the next number one. Right. And with Novak ailing a little bit, the stage was set for Murray to really stamp his authority Mm. on the ATP tour. And then we had that Kane Shikori match. Run away with the first set and then all all hell broke loose. Yeah, it would have been some wonderful symmetry, you know, to see Novak win the first two majors of the year, Andy win the second two, and then you have a real competition for who the best player of the year is, because Andy would have had that gold medal as well. I mean, everyone has a not-so-great day. The part that was troubling was how, like it's been so many times in the past, that the deficit that Andy was unable to overcome was mental mm. rather than physical. Right, which is surprising against Kei Nishikori, of all people. Yeah. I don't know. Kudos to Nishikori for making that happen. That was a huge win. Mm. And likely something that, that can help him going forward. Was unable to get past Rorinka in the semifinal. I wasn't surprised by that one bit. Some people were saying that, yeah, Nishikori is the favorite to get to the final. Like, hell oh, no. No. Did not think that one bit. Who else? Well, Del Potro had, a, you know, a great showing. But considering all the hype, you have to consider it a slight disappointment. I don't. They didn't get past Borinka because he's beaten him once this year. No. On Stan's least favorite surface. I don't, I'm not saying that he should have won. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that he put in a great performance at this tournament, made the quarterfinals, and it's almost like the the ship has been righted. You know, like the top players, the big five, let's say, have succeeded once again. I don't see his quarterfinal showing and lost to Rorinka as a loss, as a as a disappointment in any way, shape, or form. Well, a disappointment for him, I'm sure. Because he knows that he can beat Stan. Okay. We have to... I, it seemed to me that the Del Potro hype was getting a little bit of, ahead of itself mm. for a while. This is a guy who hasn't been on tour in a consistent way for years. He didn't even play the clay court season because he wants to preserve his wrist. For this stretch. And it worked. He made the final of the Olympics, had an incredible run, Mm -hmm. and had a lucky draw, let's face it, to start to get through some tricky early matches. He could have drawn Novak right off the bat, and he didn't. And so he gets to the quarterfinals with all that mileage on his wrist and body Mm -hmm. after having not played for so long. I wasn't surprised that he was a little bit gassed at that point. That's where I was thinking about that. Still a wonderful result for him. And the one thing I want to add with regard to Del Potro is, again, there was this lots of regurgitated narratives by the commentary, the commentators. Oh, his backhand is rubbish. 
McEnroe even went as far as to say there's no way he'll get back to the top five, top six with this backhand. And mm. I'm sitting there thinking, well, this backhand is getting getting him through some really tough matches right now. I see him in the quarterfinals. Um, and he's also basically playing like a top six player <laughs> these past few tournaments, right? Who uh, Look at who he's beaten. Who outside of the top handful of players have had as many big wins as he has this year in such yeah. a short period of mm-hmm. time? His pedigree is without question. And he's clearly working on figuring out how to work around the backhand situation. And it's not that bad. No, it's actually getting better. But it's also not that bad. Mm. It's not a weapon, fine. But neither was Andy Roddick's. Right? And we know that weapons can be physical and mental. Mm -hmm. He clearly has the mental side as a weapon in his arsenal. Whereas other players may have all the shots in the world and can't put two and two together on the court. So there's just way more to consider with Del Potro mm. than what we're, we're led to believe. So who else? There's there's Venus, which we talked about. Serena, who for, what, four or five matches looked like she was on this long march to the title. Her serve was just very impressive. And you're sitting there thinking, well, I guess that shoulder injury was overstated or it's healed or what. But to me, it looked like this is another title run. You know, when you see her do this in the first few rounds and to lose a set to Simona Halep to gather herself again and get through that match. I was like, well, you know, this is a pretty damn good sign. She's looking really good. However, I told you at the end of that Simona Halep match I'm watching and I'm like, why isn't she happy? You know, she wasn't really celebrating. There looked to be, to me, something to be a little bit off. It wasn't even so much that she wasn't celebrating. She wasn't even angry. Right. We're more used to seeing angry Serena. But it was just... It was just... Placid. Yeah. Just apathetic Serena. To me... Kind of sullen. It was disturbing. Yeah, because it was just like, yep, I'm here. I don't know. So... At that point, I had sort of a sinking feeling about the semifinals. I really, I still thought that she would win, but I thought there's something going on here mm-hmm. that we don't know about. I had a sinking feeling. And Marion Bartoli's not here to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> I had a sinking feeling about it regardless. Once mm. I saw Pliskova play Venus like that and win, saving match point, I was like, this, this is not going to end well. I can see that some new fresh fucker is on the horizon. <laughs> See, I don't, but I didn't see Plushkova as a dangerous opponent for Serena. Well, well, because... What have you learned? What? Roberta Vinci. Well, yeah, but they're completely different players. I'm talking and Plushkova only is, about matchup. Yeah, Plushkova is a hundred times a more dangerous opponent when she's on than, right. than Vinci. But Serena beats far superior players all the time. She does, you but know, I'm just saying... That loss to Vinci was so shocking. Yeah, but... Pliskova was coming off of beating Kuznetsova, Muguruza, Kerber in Cincinnati in the final. And then she had already beaten Venus and Serena would have been her fifth top 10 win in a span of a little over two weeks. That's crazy. Yeah, but Serena specializes in beating zoning opponents. Okay. You know, like she's the greatest. I'm just saying, this is where I was coming mm-hmm. from. I, I, I feared for Serena's life in that semifinal. I told you, as a Serena fan, I always assume she's going to win mm-hmm. until she doesn't. There is no there is no opponent that I don't think she can win on any given day. 
I, I don't got nothing to say to that. Unfortunately, she didn't. So it was, you know, a so-so year. And dominant number ones have so-so years that are marked by injury. You are so full of shit. What? A so-so year, a final, a final, a win, and a semifinal in slams, a so-so yeah, year. Yeah, for her, that is a so-so year because what happened at the other tournaments? She couldn't win Miami, couldn't win Indian Wells. It's a so-so year. It's a good year. She played eight tournaments, okay? Okay. It's a good year. She had good results. It's not as apoplectic as y'all, Rina Zarmi, would have us believe. I'm not. Do I look apoplectic? I'm saying... It sounds apoplectic. Graf had okay years where maybe she won all major. Mm-hmm. You know, especially toward the end of her career. I mean, she was out for nearly a year with an injury, right? In 98. It's this And she de- wasn't even that old. It's this delicate balance when you're that great. Mm-hmm. Of... <laughs> expectations from yourself which we know from serena are very high yes which are then transferred onto the fans which are clearly very Mm. high but objectively speaking 10 years from now when you go to wikipedia if it's still around and you look at all those green yellow and like purple semi quarter final win columns on her career timeline you're going to think back and look well that was pretty good for a 35-year-old. Right. For anyone. Right. Um, but I actually wanted to bring this up when we were talking about Novak. It is so abnormal for anyone to win four majors in a row. Mm-hmm. And we've seen Novak and Serena do it recently. This is a return to normalcy. Yes. You know? The last two players we want to talk about specifically are Rafa and Wozniacki. You talked about Wozniacki a little bit before. Mm-hmm. Let's save Rafa for the end. Caroline made the semifinals of the U.S. Open after doing nothing all year. She was ranked 74 Mm. or 75, something crazy. I know she's back up to number 29. Yeah, well, she's been injured. I really thought her career was over, but I guess I was wrong. So You were wrong. You were so dismissive to me all tournament yeah. about wh- how she was playing well I-, I was pissed off that she beat kuznetsova and i really was hoping that she would lose at every turn sorry i just <laughs> wasn't here for the caroline resurgence what what can i say and by the end of it we get to the semifinals, and you're like wow caroline's actually playing really well i'm like well no shit sherlock i've been mm. trying to tell you this for <laughs> a week and a half beating madison keys impressive mm-hmm. beating kuznetsova impressive also but madison girl that is a match you cannot lose i'm so sorry <laughs> i know caroline was playing well but like no you need to get that together rafa yeah the greatest what to say i don't know i don't even know what to say now like he the first few rounds he's looking like he's gonna make the semis he could actually be one of the the contenders on the shortlist for this title, and then, well, I don't know. Then Luca Pui. Yeah, who promptly loses in the next round. I'm Like, it's so predictable. Rafa loses the first set easily, and they trade sets going forward, right? Mm. Pui, Rafa, Pui, Rafa. So we're two sets all, get to the, the fifth set. Rafa has a break lead in the fifth. I'm at work watching this match, uh, and I'm just like, okay, I'm feeling a little bit good about this. It was a 4-2 lead. Then we get to the tie break. Rafa falls behind. 
Rafa gets to six all and then dumps a sitter of a forehand into the net. Mm. And it was just so soul crushing. <laughs> I don't I I don't know what to say. At this point, Rafa hasn't been past the quarterfinals of a slam in two years. Mm. And a lot of it can be cast aside as injury related, but it's possible and likely at this point that we've we've entered a phase in his career where there are doubts. Like Merrill says, mm-hmm. he has doubts <laughs> when it comes to the nitty-gritty of matches. And it can be a simple byproduct of not being in those positions very often anymore. Yeah, I mean, he was out for a long time. He comes back, plays the Olympics, plays Cincinnati on this wrist that apparently is getting better but is still hurting. Mm-hmm. Then plays the US Open. He's just, he's not a match tough. Psychologically, I don't think. You know, that's a fair point because he, he, he said that even in Cincinnati. He's like, I'm not worried at all physically mm-hmm. about being able to play over five sets in, in New York. Because playing singles and doubles and mixed, well, he didn't play mixed, singles and doubles in mm-hmm. Rio, it was tantamount to playing best of five sets in Rio. Right. So he felt that with the training he had done and the lead up to Rio and then Rio, mm-hmm. he was fine. But clearly, mentally. Well, that's disturbing because physically his body has let him down over the years. You know, he's had a lot of injuries, but it's always like if you want someone to play a match and your life depends on it. Who mm-hmm. are you going to pick? Yeah. And right now, it's Novak, unfortunately. No, right now, if Djokovic is the enemy of life, I'm picking Wawrinka. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends the situation, I guess. Right. If you want someone to beat, um, like, the number 50 player in the world, don't pick Stan. No. Because he could lose on really any given day. On our agenda here... I have written, see what happened was, and I have two things. The first one we didn't announce as such, but that was the McEnroe fiasco, mm. right? And then we have this follow-up from Kerber's win and ESPN having this headline that's suddenly a fascinating feature for women's tennis because Kerber's won. The gist of it being life for tennis, life for women's tennis after Serena now has all this hope and great prospects. Mm. I'm just like, girl, Kerber is damn near 38 as well. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, Pliskova didn't win anything this week. She showed promise. Many mm. people have showed promise. The The result of this, in my mind, is why are we still looking for somebody at every turn other than Serena rather than celebrating her? Hmm. I wonder why. That's the way that I view mm. this. Yeah. You should have seen... LZ Grander. Well, you did see LZ Granderson. I unfortunately did. When ESPN cut to its B team and he had finally mm. been called up from AAA <laughs> to get to the B team. <laughs> and he's on that set and he's going off. Well, oh my God, I'm so excited. Now there's going to be all these rivalries mm-hmm. and all this drama in women's tennis. And girl, uh, Kerber's been around now for all year. Where are the other rivalries that you're talking about? Pliskova Serena like nobody's batting an eye about that going forward no uh I mean when Serena loses people just get excited they love it commentators especially because they have something new to talk about 
they don't like to approach the same situations differently, which would be probably the solution. Mm-hmm. You know? This went beyond pushing a narrative. This was a glee from LZ Granderson. Oh, I know. Like, I don't know it where they, they picked him up to be on this this broadcast team because nobody likes listening to him. <laughs> His voice, excuse me for saying, is aesthetically unpleasing. <laughs> is that even the right word? Aesthetic? Orally. Orally unpleasing. Mm-hmm. And he very rarely has anything interesting to say. And we know he wrote that piece about Madison Keys. That, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was yes. him. Yeah, but beyond LZ, LZ, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's disturbing to me perennially, you know, when someone else wins a major, it's just like, oh my God, thank God we can finally get rid of that Serena girl, you know? <laughs> And maybe it's just sour grapes, but I really don't think so. To say, but if you're, I don't know who's writing the headlines, first of all. The reporter doesn't write their headlines. Mm-hmm. And an editor does yeah, that. Yeah, so, we know that. So framing a story, it can come out very differently than the co- the actual content of the article itself. But if you're someone who follows women's tennis and you just think it became interesting like yesterday, that I don't really know where you've been. Because the story is... Wow, further proof of wonderful depth on the WTA. That's what the story Mm -hmm. is. But if you follow tennis, you know that you have all these veterans back at the top of the game. You have Kuznetsova back in the top 10. You have... there. Well, if you're into that, Vinci's still reaching quarterfinal at the US Open. You have Young Guns, you have Madison Keys, you still have... Serena at the top, you have Venus, that storyline still mm-hmm. going. You've got Muguruza, you've got Kerber now. Then you have Vika, who is on her pregnancy tour. You have Maria, <laughs> who is on her drug rehab tour. Mm-hmm. You have all these other players, Yankovic, Ivanovic, big names in women's tennis over the years, who are swimming in the nether regions of the WTA rankings. Right, but tennis is surviving without them. It is. Them. And you have if you look through the WTA rankings 1 through 50, you could pick any given person to win a tournament any given mm-hmm. week. Yeah. And it wouldn't be totally shocking. And so why is it all of a sudden that it's fascinating for women's tennis because Serena has lost? It just shows that you're not paying attention to what's going mm. on in the WTA tour. Right? Yeah. And I'm, I understand that the powers that be in tennis need to sell women's tennis after Venus and Serena are gone because we don't know when they're, yeah. they're planning to retire. So they have to find a way forward. And that's something that really backfired with Eugenie Bouchard because they, they bought that so, you know, so thoroughly and it just really collapse out from it's like when you go to the grocery store and you buy a loaf of bread and you look at the expiry date it's like oh my god two weeks from around then two days later you start to see the mold Mm -hmm. like that's not what you paid for whoa (laughs) (laughs) on that note shall we move on to some odds and ends yeah we're just gonna finish up with some quick odds and ends we said in this preview episode two weeks ago that the usta needed to do a better job of scheduling for night matches and yeah, and they, they did, did not an absolutely rubbish job with night matches. Garbage. There were very, very few interesting matches at night. The, here's the thing: they don't. They clearly don't want to put interesting matches on at night. They just want top players beating someone 
like triple bagel. That's all they want. You could have put Isner Tiafo, who played a fifth set tiebreak. Mm-hmm. Sock Fritz, did we not say that? Right. I mean, Isner is... Sock Fritz at started time, at like 5 o'clock on the grandstand, which people are moving in and out from day to night session. Yeah. Like, you're giving the day session people a nice benefit there. They can stay and watch it, mm. maybe. But, like, come on. Also, it's probably not going to be televised in that time period anyway, because no. the day session is ending on TV, and then at 7 o'clock it's coming back for the night. So, schedulers, so you get weird. a big F minus cubed for that <laughs> coco vandaway <laughs> oh girl every time i read this i still get a good laugh out of it coco vandaway has been so messy and all over the place mm-hmm. in recent times yeah she's flailing all well, over the place i mean this is just her like she opens her mouth and stuff comes out she lost to naomi osaka who is somebody we've been following closely mm-hmm. recently and we had pegged as a first round match to watch, right? Mm-hmm. And so after Coco loses, she then says, "Oh, I what? What does she say, Jim?" I don't know her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know her. Well, guess what? You know her now. It's like she doesn't even go here, <laughs> right? It's God. Talk about sour grapes. I guess oh you've heard God. of her now. And then Osaka really played a blockbuster against Madison Keys too, and really had chances to take that match. I'm you know, so excited about her future. Such a bright future. One of my favorite moments from these past two weeks, Chris Everett, when asked about Garbinia Muguruza's struggles, she says, You are asking the wrong person. I cannot relate to this at all. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why oh we God. keep Chrissy around because I know. She comes up with some nuggets of truth tea mm-hmm. and shade just when you need it. It's the redemption factor that keeps us coming back to Chrissy. It's like this high wasp, rich lady confidence that <laughs> nothing can... I mean, she's sitting there like, yeah, well, from 1972 to 1989, I reached... 4,000 straight Grand Slam semifinals. (laughs) So I really don't know. Like, consistency is basically my middle name. I've won 1,500 clay court matches. I don't know what the struggle is. And then Pam Shriver shading her. They were talking about something about marriages or whatever. And Pam Shriver was saying, like, well, do you want me to go through all of yours, Chrissy? (laughs) (laughs) And Chrissy was not happy, let me tell you. I mean, the thing with Pam, and I think the reason that she came last in your poll... I am not a fan, Mm -hmm. obviously, but she is very knowledgeable. She is a legendary player. Doubles player. Doubles player, yeah. yeah. But she is so rude. She's so rude. And that is just her personality. She says whatever the hell she wants to whomever. The net effect is rude, but what it really comes down to is being bold and having chutzpah Mm -hmm. and being unafraid in the moment to take those chances <laughs> yeah i mean she has a big personality <laughs> and let me tell you when i saw her wearing her leopard print silk top with her white jeans and her lisa simpson pearls <laughs> it was it was all sorts of epic yeah upset of the tournament i asked you to come up with one for you 
because I already knew what mine was going to mm. be. And shock of all shocks, yours is. Well, mine was Pliskova defeats Serena. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, when Serena loses, it's an upset. At some point, and I hope the listeners take James to task here, he's going to have to come up with something a little bit more fresh mm-hmm. than just okay. going to the Serena well oh, how about, every time. How about Nishikori Murray? Okay, I'll take that. The You know, they're not that different in rankings, but Murray's form really should have gotten him through that day. Mm-hmm. The match for me was Jack Sock beating Chilich in three sets. Mm. I thought yeah. for sure Chilich was a dark, not even a dark horse, a legitimate favorite at this tournament, mm. especially after winning Cincinnati. And to have him lose to Jack Sock, who is a basket case, even on his average day, mm-hmm. it was, I, I'm still picking my jaw up off the floor. <laughs> Yeah, composure is maybe not what he's known for. Marco Ciudinelli won his first slam match in six years. He's now 35. Mm. That's some kind of achievement. You collect that 40-odd thousand first-round prize money. I mean, congrats for still being out here. Kayla Day beat Madison Brengel in the first round. And shout out to Michael Lewis, who's been a repeat guest on the podcast before. He was covering the U.S. Open on the ground, and he wrote a story about this, uh, that Kayla Day beat Bringle, and then Bringle claimed that she was injured in part or mostly because of the drug test that was administered to Mm -hmm. her the day before, that she has a vein condition, quote-unquote a vein condition, and that every time she gets tested, she has an adverse reaction. Yeah. And she tried her best to get ready for the match, and it just didn't happen. So that's that that's kind of a weird kind of out there unusual story. Yeah, so I'm wondering if that is going to rear its head again, if there's any sort of lawsuit action coming. She's not a name like Bouchard, but mm-hmm. you never know, it doesn't seem fair. If what she's saying is true, it's really unfair. And finally, Racket Mag has released their first issue widely And I've been seeing the cover all over Twitter. It's been popping up on US Open um, Snapchat. It's everywhere. Yet to pop up in our mailbox. Right, but we live in the nether regions of the North. We the North. (laughs) And I think people who live in Fiji have gotten it, but Canada Post really just (laughs) takes their time, you know. I can't remember. They might be going on strike soon. Congrats to Caitlin Thompson and... The Racket Mag team, we've been a part of this process to an extent. They were a title sponsor for us for, well, not title sponsor. They were a sponsor. No, the, the Racket Mag Body Serve <laughs> Incorporated. They were a sponsor for us for a few episodes. And so this is a project that we've been very invested in. Mm-hmm. And so it's great to see it come to fruition. And that brings us to the end of the episode. Or champions, Angelique Kerber, Stan Wawrinka... Doubles, we're going to just drop the doubles champions here. Lucy Shavasheva, Bethany Maddox-Sands, they won the women's doubles final, beating Caroline Garcia and Christina Medenovic, mm. which, bad luck for the French team, because they had taken out Sanya Mirza and Martina Hingis in the quarters and semis. Yeah. Separately. <laughs> and they won the first set of that final and just could not get it done. Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez... Champions again, second time in 2016. Kayla Day, 
after winning that first round match against Madison Brengle, being given a wild card into the US Open singles draw, then goes on to win the girls title. And then a bit of We the North pride, <laughs> Felix Oje Eliasim, who we saw at the Rogers Cup practicing a lot with Denis Shapovalov, mm-hmm. he wins the boys' title, going away with ease. What was it? Something like 6'3", six, 6'11"? Three, six, six, yeah. yeah. And he's, like, young. He's still a baby. Yeah, I think he might just be 16. Mm. That practice with him and Dennis at the Rogers Cup was one of the highlights of my year. So I've got my eye on both of those young mm. men going forward. Yeah, so this is the end of our Grand Slam season. Our second Grand Slam season. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy. I'm looking yeah. forward to the Asian swing, to more late nights, Venus playing three setters <laughs> yeah. in the wee hours of the morning, my time. Venus got to get into that world tour finals, you know? Right. Or she's WTA got some, finals. She's got 2,000 points now to defend the rest of the year. So I don't, I'm not looking forward to Venus being top 20 at the end of the year. I need her to, to, mm. to get the job done. Yeah. And we're finally going to do this TV episode now that tennis is slowing down a little. You know, there's no Laver Cup this year, so we have some time. <laughs> So, uh, well, look out for us on Twitter. We're at the Body Surf, and I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's, and I'm Jonathan at SportsCribeCA. Give us a review on iTunes. Those give us life. Till next time. <laughs>